Welcome. You are now listening to episode... Oof. Good question. What I'll do, I'll go to my website. It's uh, askbrian, A-S-K-B-R-Y-A-N.com. I'll click the podcast tab. And here it says, The current episode is 62, William Lagakis, Ph.D., so this is episode 63 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World with David Wolverine Smith. And what you're about to hear are the rantings of an intestinal transplant survivor. David has an amazing story. He's a true human Wolverine. This man has... Uh, faced some uh, incredible just incredible medical hurdles fantastic man with the will to live uh, like like you've never seen you know if uh, if what happened to David had happened to me you would not be hearing this podcast right now I'd be worm food All that being said, I do have a show sponsor. Hang with me, folks. Koyono.com. K-O-Y-O-N-O.com. What's Koyono.com and why should I go there? Koyono offers slim wallets, bags, compact backpacks, travel coats, jackets, shirts, pants, and other minimalist accessories. I'd highly recommend picking up a Slim Wallet. There's many to choose from, and they are fantastic. It's the best wallet you can buy, period. Now, if you're one of these savvy guys, you know, you you like the good stuff. You're a luxury shopper. You travel, and you like to look sharp. You've got I mean, you've got to check out the black coat. Keep that in mind. At least, at a minimum, start with a slim wallet. And then what you'll do is enter the coupon code SUSHI15. The word SUSHI and the numbers 15. Pretty simple. Let me know what you think once you get the product, but... I already know what you'll think. Best damn wallet you've ever had. Now, back to this episode 63 with David Wolverine Smith. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Yeah, David, we're going to, you've uh, self-glossed yourself Wolverine, or uh, was this a name given to you? Yeah, it was given to me. <laughs> started from a home nurse okay. that was taking care of me after I, um, my first bowel resection. She started calling me Wolverine because I was healing so fast. And then uh, it just kind of continued. More and more nurses and doctors kept calling me Wolverine as the more surgeries and different things I went through. 
<clears throat> matter of fact, after the transplant, it was supposed to slow down the um, you know rate of healing because I was on immunosuppressant drugs, and it didn't. So that really shocked people. So wow. that really anchored in the Wolverine. <laughs> mm-hmm. How are you yeah. feeling? How are you feeling tonight? You feel good for an hour? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm doing good. That's very good to hear. Well. I don't know how far back we need to go, but let's get people up to speed on uh, on your story and just kind of uh, weave in and out of it as we go. Okay. It's um, really complicated. Um, I guess it goes back to about uh, three and a half, maybe four years ago, because I've been um, three years since my transplant. But I really got sick about maybe six months before that. Um, I had ulcerative colitis and that was really it. I mean, it wasn't very serious. Um, I really only went to the hospital because I had lost a lot of blood. I really wasn't very anemic, but my primary physician told me to go to a hospital and get a transfusion because the blood was a little low. Um, but while I was in there, I was talked into getting a colonoscopy, which was where the big mistake happened. (laughs) Because something went wrong during the colonoscopy, and were you in a hospital or like an outpatient? What was this? No, I was admitted into the hospital for the transfusion. Okay, um, they were, you know, watching me and just giving me the transfusion in case it was any reaction or anything. And that's all I was supposed to be in for. But they kept me for an extra day to do the colonoscopy. So luckily, it was done in a hospital. Although I don't know if it was really that lucky because. I began complaining right after I came out of the uh, anesthetic that, you know, I was in tremendous pain, abdominal pain, and they were just shining it on. Well, it's just, you know, discomfort from the procedure. It was far more than that. I mean, it just kept getting worse and worse, and I just kept, you know, complaining, and they just went on for three days. They just kept giving me painkillers and really doing nothing else, you know? Yeah, typically when you complain of pain, they'll say, well, you know, on a scale of 0 to 10, where's your pain? Did they do anything like that? Oh, yeah. And you yeah. told them you're like at 8 or 9 or something? Oh, no, I was off the charts. Off, the, ch- off the charts, huh? Yeah, I was like 30. I mean, it was a point where I literally was asking someone to kill me. You'd think it's pain is that bad. You'd think that they would um, maybe take a, another look? I was going to say a deeper look, but that's a little bit weird. Doctors can be extremely cynical at points. I, I don't know if they just get a lot of people that scam them for painkillers or what, but they tend to be real cynical towards that. And they'll just keep giving you painkillers thinking that's what you want. You know, and I'm going, hey, I don't want, you know, I'm, you know, I mean, I couldn't even talk at a point to where they literally were just giving me so much painkiller, they just knocked me out. I mean, I don't even remember like the last uh, day and a half. I was totally unconscious by the third day. I wasn't even responding. You know, my wife was handling everything. When they, uh, she finally demanded somebody do something, they took me in for surgery, and they thought they might remove part of the colon or maybe even the whole colon. Well, the problem wasn't even the colon. It, um, all of the small bowels had went necrotic. I lost about half of the colon. This happened during that time period? Yeah, during those three days. So what happened? The colonoscopy punctured your colon is that what is that what the issue was we don't really know it was a a perforation which caused a massive amount of bleeding but there was a partial occlusion then it formed in the uh, mesenteric artery 
which probably didn't cut off the blood flow, but it severely slowed it down to the bowels. So the bowels just started going necrotic. And that was probably as a result of a perforation, I would imagine. But the bowels were so damaged after three days that the pathology report came back. They couldn't tell anything, whether it was a perforation. I mean, half of the bowels started turning into liquid, they said. They were that far gone. When you're saying necrotic, are you talking about a bacterial thing? No, they died. They just died. Yeah, they, they just went dead, all the cells. When they opened me up, they, they first removed um, most all the small intestines, except they left me about four feet because they figured I could live on that. But over the next five days, the stoma that was there started turning darker and darker and it became inactive. Again, the doctors kept ignoring it, saying, it's going to get better, it's going to get better. They ultimately transported me to another hospital to remove the rest of the uh, occlusion that was in the SMA, luckily, because when I got to that hospital, they, the doctors there were like, he's dying, we got to get him in surgery. I began going into seizures, and then they rushed me into surgery again and removed the rest of the bowel. So at this point, I had about six inches of small intestine. It was just enough to form a stoma. And that was basically how I was left. And I was on full-time TPN, being fed intravenously. But with that amount, because I needed about 15-hour infusion a day, the rest was hydration. <clears throat> I couldn't even drink water and be hydrated. I had to literally be hydrated through, you know, 24-hour fluids. Hmm. Maybe a half hour, an hour was the most I could be off of a IV for a day. And within a day. So I was pretty much hooked to a, a pole with pumps all the time. But they said, you know, with that amount, I could only live that way for about a year because the TPN itself is very high in sugar. And it, it will eventually, there's only six access arteries um, in the chest that access the pulmonary artery that they can feed you through. Well, the sugar will eventually corrode those arteries. And they'll lose all six access. So I guess at that point, you just starve to death. They can't feed you anymore. So they said, well, that's one way I might die. The second would be the lipids that they give you to give your fat content. Mm -hmm. and this gets a little political because in Europe, they use a fish oil, which does no damage to the liver. But in the United States, they use a soy oil-based, which ultimately damages the liver. Oh, what base? Soy. Soy, oh, okay. Yeah, it's called intralipid. And we started right away asking, you know, about that, saying, can we get the omega bin that's used in Europe? And no, the FDA won't approve it in the United States, except for children who have already taken liver damage from the soy lipids. So they know this is a, they know this is a problem, the they soy lipids. That's a problem. And they've actually got documentation of children who took liver damage were put on the omega bin and their liver improved. So it will save their life, but they won't allow you to get it first until liver damage. And if you're an adult, even if you've taken liver damage, they still won't let you get it. I met one woman um, who was getting a transplant at the same time I did, and her liver had been killed by the lipids. And so she had to get a liver transplant with the bowels. She had seven organs totally transplanted, got a new stomach, pancreas, spleen, liver, small and large intestines. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty amazing they could do that. 
But it's not very well known that they can do that because even the intestines, every doctor, and I mean, we had probably had at least 25 or 30 different doctors that were had come in at some point, you know, on my case. And every one of them here in Orlando kept telling us there's no such thing as intestinal transplant. can't be done. So they pretty much said, you're going to die of one of these three ways. You're either going to lose access because the arteries will be gone, your liver will be destroyed by the lipids, or through infections because the sugar and the TPN just, you know, it's, it's very high in sugar and vitamins and minerals, so it just feeds anything that gets in that line. Right, right. <clears throat> and your body won't defend that plastic line. So I had like three sepsis in that, just that six months. I mean, bad ones. I had a uh, fungemia, which was a candida that got in the line. And prior to that, I had a bacteremia that was really bad. I had like 106 fever. And um, so it's, it, it's very, it's very tough. And you had to actually have one of those three conditions to even be considered for a transplant. If you were doing well on the TPN, you can't get an intestinal transplant. You have to be failing. And so I had had those three sepsis. So that made me, that allowed me to qualify for an intestinal transplant. But the survival rates for the hospitals that do it are fairly high, actually. Uh, we were surprised because so many doctors were saying no one has ever survived them. But when mm-hmm. we did the research, we found out that, you know, there was, Hospitals that had anywhere from 60% one-year survival rate up to 90. I think the University of Pittsburgh um, has a 90%. But they were the first to successfully do an intestinal transplant. And uh, where I had mine was in uh, Miami, Jackson Memorial. And they were at about 78% at the time. Uh, Cleveland Clinic there in Ohio. That's where you are, right, Ohio? That's right. Yeah, they have a very high success rate there. And so you have to get a donor uh, intestines, this human? Yeah, it's human donor. Yeah. And um, so you get a small intestine transplant? Mm-hmm. I got small and large. They don't give you an entire colon for some reason. Okay. But they give you enough. All right. Combined with what was left of my colon, I, I have maybe about two and a half feet of colon total. Total? Yeah, that's about it. But it works. I mean, you know, that's why I um, kind of discovered your site and stuff because I eat a lot of fermented foods because it's very important having such a short colon that I keep that, you know, going. <clears throat> that I have a really good, you know, bacteria field going all the time. So I'm always trying to eat whatever or drink. You know, I, I ferment kefir and sauerkrauts and peppers and things, anything to uh, keep that going, you know. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's that's intriguing. Now, was this something that they recommended, or is this something you had to discover on your own? I discovered on my own. Yeah. So, what was what was their plan of attack nutritionally? Well, as far as that end, having the short colon, of course, their answer is medication. They just give most of the patients a lot of lapiramide or lamotil, you know, anti-diarrhea medicines. But you know, you got all kind of problems there. Most of them will overdo it, and they'll end up constipated and blocking me. Several of the other patients I know have been in for, you know, strictures that they've had to have surgery to repair. But a lot of times, just because they overdo it with the medications. 
you know, they have a bout of a couple of days of diarrhea and they'll just start taking tons of, you know, Lamotil or something. Next thing you know, they're backed up. Yeah. And so you, you, you did get on regular foods. How long did that take after transplant? They, they pretty much start you on regular food pretty soon. Hmm. You know, maybe after the first week, they kept me on TPN for about the first week. And then they start trying to feed you right away to get those bowels working. And, uh, Hospital food, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> not good food. Yeah, Jello, ice cream. Yeah, everything Popsicles. starts. The um, basically the liquid diet, you know, no solids at first. So the Jello, yeah, Jello soup uh, broth, which is probably more MSG than anything else in the hospital. Yeah, and you know, it's not the best of food. Um, so I tell my wife, two things you need the most to recover, you know, when your health is sleep and good food, you get neither in the hospital. <laughs> somebody wakes you up every uh, two hours, the best you're going to get any sleep. Mm-hmm. And the food is just goes to the lowest bidder. It's all contracted out. I don't think they put any thought into nutrition, period. Yeah, so you go on a course of discovery for yourself, and um, you kind of went like a paleo, low-carb, high-fat kind of thing? Sort of, yeah. I wouldn't really call it paleo because I do the fermented and I do dairy, but I'm, but yeah, it's it's a you know higher fat, low carb. Are you grain free? Yeah. Legume free? Yeah. That's paleo enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I, I don't tolerate you know uh, grains, especially wheat, very well at all since transplant. Yeah, I wouldn't imagine so. I mean, tough enough to do it with. Uh, robust system yeah uh, well you really find out you know that's why i, I kind of look at myself as a more sensitive meter because since the transplant my bowels not being mine i guess are just so sensitive to things so i can tell really quick what is you know really hard to digest compared to what's easy and grains went off my list pretty fast you know especially wheat or any breads or anything like that they just don't don't want to digest well at all I wonder, but, how, I w- do you know, like, how do the transplanted um, tissue, the how does it generate a bacterial population? Does it come with one, or are they sterile? Does it have to regrow a new one? You know, what? that's a question. I never really asked that question. I wouldn't assume it's sterile. Uh, matter of fact, I would know it isn't because that was one of the reasons the intestines were one of the last organs ever successfully transplanted. They were doing hearts, lungs, everything else before, you know, when intestinal was still had a 100% mortality rate. And uh, the surgeons told me it's because it was a dirty organ. The hmm. lungs would be the next dirtiest organ, which I was surprised to find that out, but they are because they contact the outside world. Yeah. But the colon, it's just the body defends it, the, the bowels, period, because there's so much bacteria going through there. So it has the most, like, aggressive response to any infection or anything. So when they put those new bowels in, they used to just, boom, go instantly into rejection. It was a drug that was um, called Campath that was the turning point that made intestinal transplants successful because it for some reason, and they don't even know why, even the surgeons couldn't explain, it just does, it just works, that it makes the body accept the other donor's organ. <laughs> but it really does cripple your immune system 
a lot. I see. So shutting yeah. down your immune system from attacking the new organs. Right, because they, uh, they give every patient gets one dose of Campath right before the transplant. Uh, some hospitals give follow-up doses, but the one I was at particularly didn't. But twice they made an error on me and thought I was in rejection and made a move before the biopsy came back. Both times the biopsy came back negative that I wasn't in rejection. But they had already infused me with Campath both times. So I ended up getting three infusions of Campath. My immune system was down to, I mean, nothing. My white blood cells were at 0.7. They were that low. And it nearly killed me because I ended up getting a sepsis and I had, like, no immune system. And I had been released from the hospital but hadn't left the area. They wouldn't let you. We, they wanted to get the patients out of the hospital and away from, you know, hospital-borne infections. Mm-hmm. So they had a place that was like a block away called the transplant house where it was like a kind of like a hotel that you would stay. And I just came down with a fever that night. And by morning, we went to um, where they were going to take labs to do my blood test. By the time I got there, I was barely conscious and I was having difficulty breathing. Well, my blood pressure was down to like uh, something like 50, 55 over 30 or something. And so they, they called for um, emergency rescue. And by the time the, the ambulance got me there, drove one block to the hospital. I got to the ER. My blood pressure was 35 over 28. So they were pretty much punching my ticket at that point. Wow. <laughs> they don't even know how I was conscious. I was still actually conscious. Barely. I was kind of going in and out of consciousness, but I was having so much trouble breathing. I knew if I, ever, if I went unconscious that I would stop breathing, which is evidently what happened because when they knocked me out, I must have stopped breathing because in the panic to uh, intubate me, they blew out my right lung. So here I am with a sepsis, and I have a collapsed right lung, a pneumothorax, and I was in a coma for two weeks following that. Oh, my God. Yeah. I came out of the coma. I didn't know how I got there, where I was. The weirdest part was I came out of the coma, and I was in the – radiology in a CT machine when I came out the first time. Oh, wow. And, and I'm hearing doctors talking about removing something from mm-hmm. my left my right side. They were talking about chest tubes. They had already replaced, they had put in two chest tubes that didn't work. They had placed them wrong because they didn't. That's why they had me down in the CT to try to get it placed right. I'm, I hear them talking about it. I'm waking up and I've already probably been four or five days in a coma. And I'm thinking they're harvesting my organs that I they thought I died. Oh my god. They're harvesting my organs. So I start kicking my legs and stuff. <laughs> oh my trying god. to show them I'm alive and, and next right. thing, they just knocked me out. I was out for probably another week before Whoa. I woke up. So I went through some crazy stuff. It's scary. But where I learned a lot was that in the I lived about six months with no intestines and I had a um ostomy back. And you really learn a lot when you see what comes out of there because yeah. everything was coming directly from my stomach. I had my stomach, my duodenum, and maybe, like I said, about six to eight inches of small bowel, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. jejunum. And, um, you know, because I would always hear people say, oh, you know, the propaganda that, oh, we don't digest meat very well. That's bull. Because I would eat meat and you would never find any meat or anything in that ostomy bag. But, of course, any vegetables that weren't chewed would come out whole, which was kind of funny because they would see 
uh, whole pieces of olive and uh, broccoli florets and stuff that I happened to swallow that I didn't chew. And we come out totally untouched from the stomach. Mm-hmm. But so I got curious. So I would take like a largest piece of meat I could swallow without chewing at all. And it would, you'd still never find it. Huh. So we digest meat very well. I guess so. Yeah. Wow. So I wrote an article about that on my website because I just wanted to kind of put some light on that myth that uh, meat putrefies in the colon or something, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. Can't get no way. Because I only had, like I said, six inches of a small bowel, and that meat was already gone in solution. You wouldn't even really see the fat. It would just, um, after a while, it would coagulate around the bag because the bag was clear. Mm-hmm. And you would see fat kind of uh, starting to solidify on the, you know, around the bag. Yeah, if it got cold For, or whatever, yeah. Right, it would cool down. But as far as the liquid that I would dump out of it, the fat was all um, very well emulsed. And it wasn't even floating on top or separated. So the bile really, you know, emulsifies it in there. So it was interesting to learn, you know, that. <clears throat> Did you have a... Uh strong stomach before this experience or did it gross you out at all or what (laughs) no i guess even my wife didn't i mean because she had to handle a lot of that when i was in the hospital you know emptying the ostomy bag and changing it it's really hard to change around an ostomy bag i always preferred because as a matter of fact everybody i that we met who did try to change their own it would always be leaking on them and stuff my wife would get it sealed really good because you don't want to change that bag any more than you have to. Then you have to, yeah. Man, your skin gets raw. It, like it's it's like this huge mandate. Was it just right out of your side? Yeah, I just had a piece of intestine that stuck out of my right side. Uh huh. And this bag has like a wafer that goes on, but it's got a big, um, you know, really strong medical adhesive on it. It's really hard to get off once it's on there. And part of your intestine is actually coming out of you. Yeah, yeah, maybe about a half inch of intestine sticks out. Oh, my God. And that's your stoma. And the worst thing is you don't have any control over it. Uh-huh, right. It's just you know, flowing. It's, there's no sphincter or anything there that you right. can close. So you've got a time when you change that bag because if you change it, right, you know, like an hour after you eat, it's going to be very active. <laughs> and when that stuff kits on your skin, it burns. First time I had an ostomy leak after my surgery, um, I was sitting there. I called the nurse and I said, you know, the ostomy's leaking. And I could feel I was wet. But it's kind of like car battery acid. There's a delayed reaction. It has to be on your skin for a minute or two. Mm-hmm. And then you feel it start burning. I said, eh, this is starting to burn. So you're like, yes, so. It's stomach acid. Oh, man. So that's another uh, that dispels a myth about not digesting meat very well because it starts digesting your meat real quick. <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah i think uh stomach acid is um i think one on the ph scale mm-hmm. yeah it does burn i said it's a little bit of a delay it takes yeah. maybe about 30 seconds from the time it hits your skin but once it does your skin will really turn red so if your bag is leaking all the time i mean we've seen patients their skin was just broken and cracked and just horrible from you know between the adhesive and the stomach acids. So um, being stuck with one of them for life was not a very pleasing thought to me, but mm-hmm. I don't have to ask to be anymore. And so, and at that point, where did they give you as a timeline for life? Um, 
Well, the longest living transplant patient is still alive, and I believe she's 22 years out from her, her intestinal transplant. The particular hospital I was at, their longest living patient is, was 14 years at the time and is still alive. So I imagine he's probably closer to 16 years now. So okay. I don't think there really is a limit. Oh, good, good. That's great. It's, yeah, it's not going to probably, as long as you take care of yourself, you know, the dangers are infection and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then did you have some setbacks then after that? Um, well, after the transplant, I had that bad sepsis I was telling you about. Right. But that was literally because they drove me too low. That cam path wipes everything down, your entire immune system. My white blood cells, like I said, were at 0.7. They weren't even into a whole number yet, one. Right now, my white blood cells run about 5.9, 6.1, which is actually fairly normal. Okay. So they, a lot of people think the anti-rejection medicines push your white blood cells down, and they don't. They only affect uh, certain T cells. It's very selective. So I'm not walking around with no immune system. I mean, I've, since then, I've caught flus and colds and got over them. Yeah, I was going to say, have you gotten sick and recovered? Yeah. 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 And in a normal amount of time. But then again, that might be kind of freaky to me and why they call me Wolverine, because some of the other transplant patients that I know have needed to go in the hospital and have um, antibiotic treatments for catching a flu. So I guess it's not the same for everybody. Right, right. But it's been a, it's been a long road and really interesting. You know, I learned a lot of things. Yeah, I guess so. You didn't have a medical background before this, right? Not really. I mean, I had some because I did a major in biochemistry when I was in college, way back in the 70s, or I guess 80s, early 80s. But um, that's not what my career has been. So, you know, I really didn't, I mean, I really didn't even try to eat healthy or anything um, until I got sick, mm-hmm. you know, and... Then after the tra- you know, when I lost my intestines, I'm like, well, I'm gonna try to survive. And then after the transplant, I wanna, I wanna find out how to survive this, you know. So I figured getting a good diet would be really important. And I've seen, and because I've met so many other transplant patients who were there at the time, I've seen some of the mistakes others have made, you know, and the problems it's caused them. Like I said, a lot of them that still eat a lot of, you know, really. Um, in a lot of insoluble fiber, and so they tend to get a lot of strictures, a lot of backup, you know, a lot of problems. Plus, I learned things when I was on the TPN that was, you know, just jives with everything you know about sugar and the damage that it does to arteries. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear it, and, and then other people say, well, that's a bunch of bull. But no, it isn't. The doctors even know it because they predicted it. They said, if you stay on this TPN, it will destroy your arteries. Wow. And they know it's from the sugar. There were a couple times when I had the infections, they had to remove the port because the port was infected. Well, they couldn't feed me during those times, and they would try to put in several peripherals and feed me what they call PPM, which was only partial parenteal nutrition. And even that would burn when it would go in my artery. And usually within an hour or two, the artery would infiltrate. So it would blow a hole through the artery within an hour or so just from that sugar passing through. So that's how caustic the sugar actually is to the to you know the linings of your arteries. So jacking your blood sugar up all the time really isn't a good idea. Mm-hmm. And so are you you basically uh you try to maintain a sugar free diet? Not sugar free, but I keep it pretty low carb, yeah. fruits and stuff. But okay, 
you know, for the most part, I try to keep it low carb. And I try to monitor my blood sugar because the um, prograph that I take for anti-rejection is one of those drugs that can cause you to be diabetic. As a matter of fact, one of the other women, she had a transplant maybe four or five months after mine. She was just diagnosed um, just a couple of weeks ago with diabetes because of the drug. Mm-hmm. So I monitor my blood sugar pretty close to keep yeah. it low. Yeah, and if you're on fruit, then you're then that's a fructose, and that's processed by the liver, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. A little different sugar uptake mechanism there. Yeah, that has to be converted to a triglyceride, right, to be yeah. used, whereas glucose is going to go you know, straight into your blood. And um, so, yeah, I try to watch that because uh, a few of the patients that were diabetic down there, they didn't survive. That tended to be pretty consistent. Mm-hmm. So I don't know about this woman, you know, now she's been diagnosed diabetes, you know, that's a bad thing because you're going to heal slower. You know, a lot of things go against you at that point, uh, especially healing slower. That tended to be one of the the things that cost some of the people their life, which was why, again, you know, when they saw the rate that I healed, because that was one of the things after my transplant, besides the bad sepsis I had, I told you they perforated the right lung. Um it, I ultimately ended up with five chest tubes placed. I have no feeling on my right side. Or so, I mean, they used every hole between every rib to try to get that lung to inflate. They still ended up having to go in and do a lung resection on the top of my right lung. And they weren't going to – the surgeon that was called in to do it, she didn't want you know to do it. She's like, we may have to take you off the program in order to do the lung surgery. That was scary because without the prograph, I could reject the organ. Okay. So, uh, but she said, you won't heal. And if, if that lung doesn't heal, you know, you're going to be in trouble. So, but then when she went in and examined it, said all the chest tube um, where they had put them had already scarred over. And she really was one that anchored the Wolverine because she's like, that should not have happened because I was on the prograph. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have healed like that. So she still couldn't explain it. <laughs> so you're not supposed to heal like that. But luckily I did because I was able to get the lung surgery and heal from it. Um, matter of fact, the last uh, x-ray I had showed the lung was fully back inflated again. Really? It's the same size as it was, mm-hmm. which was amazing because right after the surgery, you could see they had taken you know, the top of the lung off. So it was, it was missing a pretty good amount of lung on the top. But it's it's amazing how the body regenerates, you know. Yes, it is. Yeah, everything I've seen is just incredible, you know. How some of the things you see people survive that you just wouldn't think they would. And how was your mental, you know, focus through all this, or your spirits? I, you know, should I say, like your? Do you have a good positive outlook through yeah. all this? Yeah, I really yeah. did. Even when the doctors were telling me there was no transplant and that I was, you know, basically I had a year, maybe two to live. And I still just somehow felt they were wrong, <laughs> that somehow I would, you know. We stayed focused on the, the idea that there was a transplant somewhere. Well, one particular doctor, when I had my first 
the first bowel resection had mentioned to my wife that there was such thing as a transplant. I guess I just held on to that. You know, you try to hold on to any hope. Yeah, right. I mean, we had, I had doctors coming in every day telling me, you know, that it was hopeless, that I wasn't going to live very long. And I just never, never believed it, you know? I knew I couldn't. You can't, you know? Mm-hmm. I think as soon as you start believing it, then you start going downhill. But I wasn't about to. I fought all the way through and still here. It's probably three and a half years since the transplant. Okay. I was going to, I was going to ask now, how long, how long was it? So three and a half years ago? Yeah. 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 2010, March of 2010. So it's not quite three and a half years, but. You've been yeah. hospital free or in and out or so what's the, what's been going on lately? Well, I was relatively hospital free. I mean, I didn't. Now, I was in the hospital for a long time after my transplant because of those. I was there seven months uh, because of that um, sepsis I had and then the, the lung problems. Uh, once I got out there, I mean, I was like two years. I didn't even get near a hospital. But uh, recently, I've been in the hospital. I was just in the hospital for the last like three weeks. But that's because they're treating a, a multiple myeloma that I developed which is probably from the excessive amount of radiation that I got, uh, plus being immunosuppressed. So, so maloma, uh, mal- what is that? Um, it's a type of cancer. Yes, of the skin? No, it's no. A, a blood cancer. It's, oh. sim- it's sort of like leukemia. Okay. But it's in that same kind of family, except it, it, it kind of eats away at your bones. So I had this plasma cytosis, like a tumor, it came up on my head. Otherwise, they wouldn't. They, we still wouldn't know I have it because all my blood numbers are perfect. So, and then when they did the bone marrow um, biopsy, they found it was in there, but it's it's less than five percent. It's at a really low percent. Okay. So something I'm doing is right because it's kept it really in remission. I mean, we wouldn't even know I had it if it wasn't for that that one tumor that came up on my head. Oh. And no, that's a mystery. None of the doctors can explain, you know, why this one tumor went rogue. I mean, they ate a hole right through my skull. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah, I got a four-centimeter hole. So my... right, it ate through your skull? Yeah. Yeah, that's what myeloma does. Like, the, the bone, your bones are constantly breaking down and repairing themselves. Mm-hmm. Once you get multiple myeloma, it, it breaks down, but it won't repair. So your bones just literally start dissolving. Wow. And I don't have any damage anywhere else. It's just one on the head. Uh-huh. I don't know what, why that one went crazy because there's, there's other ones in there, but they're really, you know, really small. It's like you know, you, they, they, they could stay that way for 20 years. It's like you came with built-in relief valves or something. <laughs> <laughs> you are the Wolverine. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Wow. So what the hell are you some kind of six foot five strapping muscled up super freak or what no the exact opposite i'm a little tiny i'm i'm five foot six and probably the heaviest i've ever been in my life was about 132 (laughs) (laughs) right now i'm about 109 pounds (laughs) they need to rewrite that wolverine character on the (laughs) x-men yeah that's what's so shocking is i'm such a small guy right 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 i guess uh the will to live. Yeah. Yeah. There. I got a lot of fight in me for 
little guy. Um, I was always thin. I was never heavy, which went in my favor because a lot of the surgeries I went through, the surgeons even said that if I was obese, I probably wouldn't have survived them. Mm-hmm. They have a lot more problems with infections and stuff going in there. So that part went in my favor, but I'm a little too thin now. But I try. I, you know, I'll try yeah. to gain weight. I just don't. But I'm not really eating foods that would tend to make you fat, I guess. I know the doctors would like to see me eat more carbs, but it's like, oh, I'm not going to take the risk on being diabetic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. you're in a hospital. They take pump. I mean, you know, I guess it's cheap food. They're always going to give you mountains of, you know, grains, rice, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Bread. But, you know, and that didn't make sense to me because here they're telling me that the TPM is destroying your arteries, but then over here they want to shove a bunch of sugar in you. Yeah, yeah. So, you, same you, so you've pretty much just self-directed your diet and yeah. it's, it's working in your favor? I guess. So far I've been doing pretty good. Yeah, good. I mean, I've been uh, probably out of the hospital longer than any of the other transplant patients we know. They've been back in several times for pretty severe stuff. Especially dehydration, which I haven't had any problems with. That seems to be the biggest danger, is the dehydration. But I wonder if a lot of that's not caused by high carbohydrate consumption. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, fats are are incredibly hydrating. So, well, here's an amazing little thing that we learned too. When I didn't have any intestines, because it really didn't matter at that point what I ate. Because it would just, it would, I wasn't absorbing anything, not even water. Mm-hmm. It goes straight through me. So, but if I drank a very sugary drink like a soda or Gatorade, even or fruit juice, if I would drink, let's say, one cup of water, I mean, of Gatorade, I would output two and a half to even three cups of fluid. And that was a mystery to us because we had to match. We all this had to be monitored. Every bit of fluid that came out of me, every bit of fluid that went in me. And so the ostomy output, my urine, everything had to be measured so that we could replace what, what, what I was losing because dehydration would kill you really fast. But, and it, so it amazed us. Well, wait a minute. How could I be outputting more than I input? Uh-huh. Right. A pharmacist explained it to us that when you put a lot of sugar into your stomach, the one who was compounding my TPM, he said your body will give up water from your tissues to dilute it. Now, in a healthy person, most of that water is going to be recovered in your colon. But because I didn't have a colon, then I lost all of it. The worst thing I could do was mix sugar and caffeine. I drank iced tea one night, and we thought for sure I was going to end up in the emergency room. I mean, my wife was giving me boluses of fluid to try to match the output. I output nearly three gallons of fluids that night. Wow. So, and you discovered this was from these... Uh, I'm guessing these are like glucose-based beverages, like you said, Gatorade and right. Typical. That's like what's in Pedialyte that you give kids when they're throwing up to keep them hydrated. Mm-hmm. And this is pulling your bioavailable liquids out of your body. Right. That is remarkable. I never heard of such a thing. To dilute it. I see. Wow. And I didn't know that. You know, and that, that shocked us. And a pharmacist is the one who caught that? Yeah. No doctor ever explained it. We asked him. It was, yeah, it was the pharmacist who compounded the TPN. 
that told us exactly what the hydration mixture should be. I, I still drink to this day. I put like um, a certain level of Himalayan sea salt into my water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to to you know balance the hydration correct. Just so it you know, even though I have a colon now, but because I have a short colon, but I have never had a dehydration problem. And every other patient we know, which is probably over a dozen, has been in the hospital for at some point for dehydration. But I mean, there's one girl. I saw her after transplant. She was, you know, drinking a Red Bull. It's like, well, you're kind of asking for trouble there. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. Sugar. And whatever untold chemicals are in there, you know. Yeah. And she's always had problems with dehydration. Matter of fact, she's nearly three years out and still has to have a port because she dehydrates so often. They wanted to leave a port in me, and me and my wife said, no, pull it. I'll stay hydrated. Okay. Now, I've never needed it because, you know, the port's just inviting infection. Right. Uh, but three years out, she still can't get rid of her port. Yeah, you have a port. It's your mouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, her mother always, you know, as her caretaker, they're always, she's always having to give her fluids in the middle of the night because she's, you know, dehydrating. Her blood pressure will drop and, you know, she'll be in there giving her a bolus of fluids. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, but like I said, she drinks Red Bull and. You know, yeah. coke and you know, um, yeah, chasing your own tail. That's just that's that's horrible. What a downward spiral. I know. You know, when you mix the two, the caffeine and the sugar, that's the worst. When I like said that one time, I drank a couple glasses of iced tea. I was over at my mother's house for, and she invited us over for dinner, and we literally thought I was going to the hospital because it just wouldn't stop outputting. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't imagine why. You know, what did I do different? And that was when we really started investigating and found out, you know. So you got to imagine that that's doing that to anybody, even if you're going to recollect it. At the colon, uh-huh. in that period of time, your, your body's going to be deficient in fluids. You know, you're sacrificing a lot of fluids that are just recycling through your, you know, uh, digestive system just mm-hmm. to keep things moving and to keep that sugar diluted. Now, on the flip side, if you put too much, you know, salt, I think it was, the other way around, you'll lose electrolytes, I think. Hmm. No, if you just drink water, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, just asked him, like, okay, if the sugar is going to do that, what if I just drink water? And he said, no, you can't do that because you'll lose electrolytes. Right, that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Your body will do the opposite, and it'll sacrifice, you know, electrolytes into your digestive system mm-hmm. to pass mm-hmm. out of the water. So, so that's why you mix in a little bit of the sea salt? Right, to try to add those electrolytes in there, but without the sugar. Although they do call for a certain amount of sugar to be put in there, but I don't. Oh, you don't at all? No, I don't put any sugar in there. It, it just it ruins the taste. This stuff, this formula he gave us, oh, it was worse than Pedialyte. You couldn't gag it down. Even the pharmacist admitted few people can drink it. It's just not very palatable. There's something about mixing this really small amount of sweetness in with all that salt. It's just, yeah. I had that Pedialyte. When I first let, lost my intestines at the hospital, they were giving me that Pedialyte. I don't know if anybody drinks that stuff. <laughs> it's horrible. And this mixture wasn't much better. But I found one that works, and it's, it's evidently worked pretty good for me because I haven't had any, you know, any problems. I, I took a little bit of kidney damage during all that anyway 
from a uh, antibiotic that they used. So we monitor that pretty close too, so it doesn't get any worse. It's actually improved over the years, over the last two years. My creatinine numbers came down. They used to be kind of high. So what I'm doing must be working. <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah, I was lucky that's the only organ I took damage to. Because during yeah. that one sepsis, they were hitting me with so many antibiotics that they, they told my wife I could take liver damage, kidney, uh, even brain damage. But I ended up not suffering any of that. And matter of fact, I even came out of that without any kidney damage. It was after the lung surgery that they actually used it as a prophylactic. So I didn't even have the infection. They were trying to cover for it. It gave me this drug and my whole face went numb. My tongue went numb, the back of my throat. I couldn't even eat because I was afraid I'd choke. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't, I, it was like my whole face went to sleep and the inside of my mouth was all tingly like when your arm goes to sleep. And I'm like, something's wrong, you know. And they said, well, it's that antibiotic. So I removed myself from it. They wanted to keep me on it for eight weeks. It's a good thing because I would have been in total renal failure in eight weeks. Wow. And I'd be stone deaf too. Really? Yeah, I took hearing damage from it. I took about a 42% loss of hearing. But my wife followed right up on that. And she found a um, ear, nose, and throat doctor that said he thought he could fix it if he got to it in time. Mm-hmm. Well, I was still in the hospital, and I couldn't get. He couldn't bring the equipment there. I couldn't go to his place. But eventually, as soon as we got out, we went. But it was I had to take three injections in the eardrum each year. Boy, did that hurt! Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. They wouldn't do it all at one time. You only do one ear at a time. Yeah. So in, in case you went deaf, you still have the other ear. So I would get one shot in one ear, and then two days later, I'd get a shot in the other, and that went on for six visits. And it was tough to get up to go for the next visit. You yeah, know, I bet. Stick that needle in your eardrum. Oh, man. <laughs> and then the whole room would spin. It would throw like this vertigo. Yeah, right. Yeah. And you get nauseous because it just like the whole room was just spinning. But it worked. I got my hearing is almost completely back 100%. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Snitis. That's it. Right after the um, the damage was done, I mean, you had to yell for me to hear you. Yeah. There's just ringing was so loud. My, I couldn't even sleep at night because the ringing was so loud. You know, I had to have, like, white noise in the background. But, like, talking on the phone was almost impossible. I couldn't hear anyone. So I was really happy that I got my hearing back because, like you said, I do a lot of audio. I'm a musician. Yeah, I was going to say, so what happens to your career during all this? Yeah, I still do work when I can on a contract, you know, because I've always been self-employed. So I, you know, do contract art and music and stuff. So. What do you do? Well, I've done a lot of things over the years. I've, um, let's see, go back far enough. I used to work, well, many, many years ago, I, I played professionally, you know, music in a band. And after that, I went into doing special effects in like film and television for about 15 years. And then I was just mostly doing a lot of um, work for theme parks. That's why I live here in Orlando. Okay. Disney was my biggest contract. Um, But I still do stuff for Universal, Six Flags, uh, Paramount Parks. So I would do a lot of um, sculpture work. and. So that's like digital audio stuff on the computer? 
Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I do a lot of now. Oh, okay. Is, is, no, that was all physical. That wasn't digital. Oh, really? Yeah, that was physical sculptures. You know, I would carve uh, statues and stuff like that for the park. Ah. Oh. Stuff for photo ops and things, you know. Oh, like, interesting. Okay. Yeah, kids pose with uh, characters, you know, from the movies. And chances are one of those characters is one I did. Oh, wow. So, um, and a lot of store displays they put up and window displays, animated windows. So I did a lot of different different things. I still, during the years of crossover, I would still work in films once in a while on television, you know, doing effects. But it was just I had to do less traveling. It was more stable to just do the theme park stuff, <laughs> you know, so I did that. Yeah, since you were there, right? Yeah, but... About eight or nine years ago, I started dabbling with the computer and doing modeling and 3D animation. So I was doing a lot of that. And I've kind of moved more into that because with all the health problems, I really can't work around all the chemicals and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which may have contributed to some of my health problems. And everything in those arts was all kind of uh, polymers and polyesters. And, you know, I've been exposed to a lot of chemicals over the years. So... Yeah, and I, I was working on some of my own original content that I was pitching at the time I got sick, as a matter of fact, at an animated um, series that I was, me and my brother were producing, that we were pitching to Comedy Central at the time. Oh, really? Yeah. It's all on hold right now. Yeah. You know, it has to drop, but because I got ill. So, now that I'm back, I'm rebuilt my whole studio here at home. So I want to get back and redo all that. That's cool. Very cool. Do you have any clips or anything online? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, at uh, theamericanwayseries.com. Okay. Yeah, there's um, a short clip. It's about a two-minute clip. Cool. Make sure you send me the link to it, and I'll put it in the show notes so people can check it out. Yeah. also have a site, um, one of a film, a short comedy. I made two of them, actually, which won a lot of film festivals. It's called The Animal Grappler. It's really funny. It was made about uh, maybe 10 years ago now, but it was a satire of the Crocodile Hunter. Okay. But it's kind of a mixture of live action with uh, CGI, like the animals are CGI. But the guy who's wrestling them and stuff, you know, is real. Oh, wow. So they're pretty funny. They're pretty funny. I mean... um, Well, I got to check that out. I think I won about, I think, seven different film festivals with it. (laughs) That's awesome. Wow. 2002 i think yeah yeah i made two of them but they, they were kind of designed just as shorts you know not mm-hmm. as a long series mm-hmm. but they're still online you can find them at the website okay animalgrappler.com so that's some of the stuff i i worked in all right and so what about medical expenses and things like that or has that left you no, no, we're not in extremely bad shape there, actually, considering because what happened to me was just so catastrophic mm-hmm. you know, that uh, the Medicaid and all that paid for all of the transplant stuff. Yeah. That's great. That's really great. Yeah, I'd have never been able to get a transplant without that. Mm-hmm. This transplants are over a million dollars for the transplant. A million dollars? Oh, yeah. It's like $1.3 million for a transplant. Wow. Intestinal. Well, that covers all the care, you know, because right. it's a long recovery. Yeah, we see kidney 
transplant people come in and be out within a week. You know, legit, they said like the average stay for kidneys is three days. But intestines, you're going to be there for about five or six months recovering. Mm-hmm. Even heart and lung transplants recover faster than that. It takes a long time for that intestine to start working. I mean, they get you up and start you walking right away because they said it. I guess they can't connect all the nerves back for all the um, you know muscle movement. Mm-hmm. So your bowels end up depending a lot on gravity. And if you don't get up and you don't walk right away, it won't work. Huh. And some of the patients would they would just lay in bed and uh, uh, yeah. walk. Right. And, you know, physical therapists come in. You can't make them. You know, if they don't want to walk, you can't make them. My wife would always tell me, "You feel like walking?" I go, "No, but I'm going to anyway." <laughs> wow, that's the spirit, man. Oh, I—I I mean, at first, I couldn't even stand up straight because I had a a scar from my sternum to my, you know, crotch. Uh huh. And it just didn't even want to bend, you know. Oh. I'd walk all bent over like a like a cobra ready to strike. Yeah. <laughs> and Wolverine my, cobra. Wow. Yeah, from being in bedridden for so long my legs were just had it atrophied so bad mm-hmm. i mean my knees were the largest part of my leg you know in in diameter yeah i look like somebody from a third world country yeah right. pictures, when you look at it you go that guy i look at it and see my own picture and go that guy didn't survive man because i look like a cancer patient that was in their you know final stages yeah my eyes were all sunk in i probably weighed about 93 pounds um, you know, and so to get up and walk, I mean, I had to relearn how to walk twice. It was like being a baby over again. You know, I'd stand up and, and physical therapists would have to grab me cause I, I would just cave, cave yeah, in them. Yeah. had no strength. So, um, but by about six weeks after my transplant, you know, we were clocking it and it, you know, I could just walk around that floor of the hospital and we had measured and I think it was like 18 laps around in order to go a mile. Mm-hmm. And I was walking about a mile and a half. But we didn't see anybody else doing that, the other patients. That was the hardest thing. Was the, I used to try to encourage other patients to come out and walk with me, keep me company. But uh-huh. I always have some excuse that no, I don't feel up to it. No, right, right. I'm waiting for my dinner or something like that. So but, Probably just that simple act of walking. I mean, that had to be, I bet that was profound to your system. Mm-hmm. Your mental health, physical well-being, everything. Yeah. Yeah, when I, we have a state park near us. When I first got home, I went and I walked about maybe a quarter mile, and I was like, I got to go back. You know, I was out of gas. I told my wife, I said, by the end of this year, which was only like three months from then, I said, I'm going to walk this entire loop, which is six miles, which I used to walk all the time. Yeah. And I did. In December of that year, I walked the entire six miles around, the, and this is trails. Yeah, yeah. Tough walking here in Florida. It's all sand. And so I was, I was pretty proud of that, and I was able to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's excellent, excellent. And so today, you're all plumbed up, function normally, walking, talking, doing your work? Oh, yeah. That's fantastic. For a year following the transplant, I still had to have a stoma. After they gave me the bowels and the colon, where the the ileum and the colon meet, they both came out of me as two different stomas. And the one was active, the colon wasn't. 
they would eventually go in and tie the two together inside. It was really weird that they did it that way. So then you only had half of the food going to your colon, the other half still coming out of your stomach. Uh-huh. The only reason they did that is so they could put the scope inside the stoma to okay. look for signs of rejection. Mm-hmm. That was pretty interesting because they would scope it once a week and they would stick an endoscope into the stoma. You don't feel it. They don't have to sedate you or anything. And it was a magnifying and they could go in and zoom in on the villi. It's really interesting to see it on the screen. It looks like, like a sea anemone, you know? Yeah, yeah. It had all these long fingers. And they could tell if you were in rejection by that. Or they thought they could because they were wrong on me twice. So. Right, right. Then they would take and cut one of the villi out and send that for a biopsy. Wow. And that was how they were wrong twice because they, they said it looked like it was in rejection. But when the biopsy came, it, was, it wasn't. So the two camp paths I got were completely unnecessary. That almost cost me my life. Mm-hmm. A lot, a lot of mistakes. Well, you see a lot of how many errors go on in a hospital when you're in there for 14 months. Because mm-hmm. I was total 14 months in the hospital. And, I mean, just some of the errors that are made are just because I guess they work those nurses too long. Like 12-hour shifts, you know? Yeah. So I had a nurse. She's running late. She came in. And now I had a port. And that went into my pulmonary artery to within an inch of my heart. I mean, they pumped that TPN straight in your heart. Mm-hmm. And she had hooked it up, primed it, and accessed the port. And she was getting, going to start it, and she realized she didn't put the filter in in between. Well, the filter comes with about two foot of line. So she unhooks it, hooks the filter back in, puts it in, and goes to hit start on the pump. Luckily, my wife, who was just stayed at my side the entire 14 months. I mean, she slept in chairs and wherever she could in the room. She caught it and, and caught the nurse and stopped her. But she, she would have hit start. I would have had air embolism. I mean, she would have sent two foot of air in that line because she didn't reprime it. Wow. So, I mean, in a hospital, you live every day like that. One yeah, mistake. Right. One mistake. Yeah, yeah. You know? That's one hell of a wife you have. She is. Incredible. Uh, she had to go... Um, all the way to a U.S. senator to get me the transplant in order really? to get approved for it. Yeah, yeah, because they they were said that my benefits had run out, mm-hmm. and I didn't have any more hospital days. But there was the doctors were saying there's no way I would survive another six months, and they were saying I would have to wait six months to get the transplant. So my wife she started making calls. Next thing you know, she had uh, Senator Bill Nelson's office and. He signed a paper to say no, proven for the transplant now. And I was shipped straight down there. Interesting thing was I I went down and after they ran all the tests and they put me on the list. And, and now Miami is about four and a half hours from Orlando. So we came back home and I was only home for six days. And they called and said, we have an organ. Oh, wow. I mean, there's people waiting for kidneys for years. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But the yeah. reason is, is because so many hospitals do kidney transplant. Yeah, okay. There's so few that do intestines mm-hmm. that the, the organ is very available. I see. So they told me I'd probably get it pretty fast. But six days was incredible. And they told us it was a really good match, and it must have been, because I've never had any rejection issues at all. This is uh, quite a story. 
Uh, you're an inspiration, that's for sure. No, thanks. I mean, your will to live, uh, trust me, I would have I given up <laughs> two minutes in. Man, <laughs> damn, I'm really, really impressed. It's been a fight, and it still is, you know, all the time. I mean, you know, I live every day on taking this medication at this time. I really don't take that many medications. That's one of the shocking things, too. They told me after the transplant, I would probably be on anywhere from, you know, 14 to 20 different medications. And I was like, man, that's, I'm a person who's never taken any medication Mm -hmm. in my entire life. So that was going to be rough. I only take like three medications. Yeah. Because by the time, now they wrote me scripts for about 20, but by the time I really got down to it and started questioning, there was really only a handful that I needed. Mm Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were just completely unnecessary and probably damaging. Um, <clears throat> for some reason, they put every patient immediately on uh, a, a proton pump inhibitor, like Nexium or Prilosec. <clears throat> right. I asked them, I said, why do I need to be on this? They said, well, most patients you know, suffer you know, a lot of dirt or indigestion. I said, well, can I come off of it and see if I do? Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, so I did, and I didn't have any problems. Well, some of the other patients, like two, three years out, they started becoming anemic because those PPIs start messing with the intrinsic factor in your stomach, mm-hmm. you know, and you don't absorb B12 anymore. Um, I even figured it out on one of the uh, girls because she had, was talking to me on the phone. She was saying she was anemic, and they couldn't figure out why. They kept infusing her with iron, but it didn't help. The doctors, and I said, have they checked your B12? I said, are you still on Nexium? I said, yeah. And then she said, no. So I told her, well, go have your B12 check. And she did, and it was like zero. I mean, they couldn't even find a trace of B12, you know? Mm-hmm. So they put her on, you know, B12 injection, she was fine. And I don't know why they, they do stuff like that, you know? Yeah, that's very curious, yeah. That's not a medication anyone should be taking for life. That's not know? a medication, yeah. That's, those are, that's a medication I railed against. It was one of my first discoveries, because I started with this whole health thing because of my GERD or whatever. It never was properly diagnosed, but I was on I was on those medications as well and I've helped a lot of people get off of those. Yeah. Did did it affect your blood? Did you start I never got any proper testing done, you know? I just yeah. wasn't well all the way around and that was the first medication that went away. Um and I did that with fermented foods. Well, that's typically what happens to people because everybody thinks that they get the GERD because their stomach has too much acid. And actually, it's usually the reverse. It's because it's too low. Yep. Typically. Yeah. It's a common. That's the, yep. And the food is staying in their stomach too long, you know, and they end up heartburn. So they start taking the PPIs. They lower the acidity of their stomach. Well, the intrinsic factor can't bind to the B12 if, if it's in a low acid environment. So next thing you know, they're, they're anemic, you know? Yeah, and then when you're on a high-carb diet and those carbs are then digesting in your stomach, it causes uh, intra-abdominal pressure. It also right. causes bacterial overgrowth in the stomach. That's the next thing that happens, right? Yeah, and it's, so when you're, and then you're feeding it carbs, which are just sugars, and then it's just a, you're screwed. I mean, there's no, it, it's a terrible, terrible uh, medicine, especially yeah. in that situation. That's another reason I, I eat low-carb, because I had a candida infection from the uh, 
TPN that nearly killed me. And, you know, people don't realize that that candida just loves sugar. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're not going to get rid of candida. It's in all of us. It's on every surface on the face of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. So the only way to control it is by having enough good bacteria to keep it in check, you know. Once you let it go out of control, start growing in your stomach and small intestines, and that happens when people take those PBIs. Yep. Those uh, fungus starts growing in their stomach and their small bowels. And then, like you said, they start getting that back pressure. Yep. <clears throat> uh, the, the approach most people are taking now that are aware is they're actually taking acid now, betaine HCL. Right. And getting fantastic results. And if people aren't willing to do that, they're even just doing um, whole vinegars, uh, healthy vinegars like Bragg's. These are vinegars with the mother in it, you know, Mm -hmm. and getting pretty good results that way as well. Absolutely. And, you know, the funny thing is... A lot of things, you got to flip it on its head, right? you got to... Right. And the doctors will still push the idea that there's hyperacidity. Yet, you see a lot more GERD as as people get older. You know, seniors suffer more more of this reflux problem. Well, as we get older, our stomach acid lessens, not increases. Right, right, right. So it should be the reverse. We should see, if it was hyperacidity, we should see it more in young people, right? But we don't. You see that problem more so. Why does the doctors even still push that? Yeah. So if somebody complains of heartburn, oh, you have too much stomach acid. And this is often another course of thought I've entertained over the years is that I do believe that we should probably alter our diets over as we age. I think the diet should change to meet whatever our natural, you know, our homeostasis is. If our stomach is decreasing in acid naturally, perhaps we should follow suit and perhaps decrease carbohydrates or sugars and, and other things. I mean, I don't know. These are just ideas I have. Right. Yeah, I agree. Instead of, you know, there's probably something, too, pumping up the acid a little bit just to keep it vibrant and working properly, but not as a reliant, not, not as reliance, you know? Mm-hmm. Our bodies have, like you said, man, they're, they're amazing, powerful. So you got to, you know, as one of my favorite authors, Taleb, says, you can't out-statistic nature. Right. So occasionally... You've, you've got to find a path towards it. It sounds like you're doing a an incredible balancing act there. I, yeah. I really applaud you for it, for experimenting, thinking, questioning medicines, questioning the food, having your wife watch the nurses, <laughs> you know, all the motions, all the things. It, it's uh, some diligent work. Yeah, my diet has just been a constant experiment since the transplant, you know. I mean, even here we are, you know, three years later still figuring out things that, oh, I can't eat this, you know. Because we eat so many things in a day, it's not always really apparent which one gave you the problem. Right, right, yep. So sometimes it can be tough to, to isolate it down and figure out which one did it, you know. And sometimes I would drop the wrong food. And then find out later, no, I can eat that. It was okay. this. Thing. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's been a constant experiment, but also doing research, you know, as much as I can. And, you know, finding out that, hey, these things that I read line up with what I saw. You know, it's kind of like the, the reading about low carb and you got other people that will just totally poo-poo the low carb idea. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when I 
doctors are telling me that these sugars are eating my arteries away, it's, it's a no-brainer. <laughs> right, right. You know? And, and then it's like the soy. You've got a big debate out there that all soy is uber health food. Mm-hmm. And you got other people saying soy is a totally toxic poison. I tend to lean that direction because, I mean, this girl's liver inside of six months was destroyed yeah. by yeah. soy lipids. Yet, when they give them the omega vin fish oil, it will correct their liver. Yeah, It'll fix the problem. So it's not that hard to figure out which one we should be eating. <laughs> right, right. And I don't know how the doctors can kind of talk out of both sides of their face. Like they don't hold two thoughts in their brain at one time. Because <laughs> you know, the doctor can tell you, you can't stay on this TPN. It's corroding your arteries. But then turn on the other side after you get the transplant and tell you, you eat a lot of carbs. Right. And jack your blood sugar up. Uh-huh. And they don't have a problem with that. Like when you're in the hospital, they'll feed you a lot of carbs. And they have no problem with coming and shooting you with insulin. Right. You know, when your carbs... Like you know, waking you, you up to give you a sleeping pill. Yeah, they don't, they don't think anything of that. They don't think that, hey, maybe we should back down on the, the amount of carbs. If your blood sugar's high, they just come in and hit you with insulin. Yeah. And they were doing that to me all the time. You know, I'm like, nurse come in with shot. What's that? The insulin? You know, because they were... I mean, I had... I could play my hand like a flute. You know, I had so many holes in my fingers. You know, I think they yeah. tested blood sugar like every four hours. Mm-hmm. Especially before the transplant, when I was on the TPN, because they're injecting sugar straight in your arteries. Wow. So they constantly monitor your blood sugar. Mm-hmm. And if you put too much, they hit you with insulin, you know, and it's this constant balance all the time. Man. But it's like, wouldn't it be better just to back off on the sugar? You think? They haven't figured out how to feed a human being without <laughs> sugar. Well, they haven't, because uh. I asked them, you know, why do you pump so much sugar? Through this TPN, they said it's the only calories we know of that they can give to you intravenously. They don't know how to really pump fat into you, you know? Uh Uh-huh. And the only lipids they give you are those soy lipids. And they tend to do more damage than good. I was lucky. I didn't take any liver damage. And that was kind of shocking because we met this girl, this woman. She was yellow. I mean, her eyes were like this golden color. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, we knew that the um, soy lipids could hurt my liver, we were told. But we figured maybe she's been on TPN for, you know, a couple of years. So I asked her, you know, how long have you been on TPN? Six months. That's how long I had been on them. But I didn't take any damage. That's because so, you're Wolverine. I guess. Completely <laughs> in cirrhosis. You know, she had to get a liver transplant, That's, and I, yeah. we were fearing that, you know, going, hey, I don't want a liver transplant, too, you know. That's why we were trying to fight to get the Omega then. But the the pharmacist, compounding pharmacist, he told me, he said, I lose my license. That's how strict it is. Okay. He said, if I gave that Omega then, I would lose my license. Wow. I don't get that. Right. I don't understand why the FDA is needing so much time to approve fish oil. Yeah, I think it has more to do with patents. Okay. I, I was going to say, there's probably some, yeah, legal. Probably an American pharmaceutical company that has the patent on the intralipid to soy. Mm-hmm. Probably some European pharmaceutical company has a patent on the omega Men, I would guess. There's got to be a political reason it's being kept. That would make sense in today's world. Yeah. Yeah, you learn a lot about that when you're in the hospital. Yeah, it sounds like you've gotten a complete medical education as well on your own. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the medical <laughs> education was big time. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, I'm going to let you go for now. 
All right. And uh, man, your story is fantastic. It's inspiring. Um, a little bit of awareness out there for um, intestinal transplant. I mean, I had never even heard of such a thing. So yes, I mean, most people haven't, including yeah. doctors, which is one of the reasons I like to get the word out. Yeah, right, right. Had my wife not continued to investigate, I, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah. If I stayed on the TPN, I would probably be gone by now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you have any links to resources and um, the things she found or information for other people, I'd love to, you know, either just link to you where all the information's there, or if you have some specific links you'd like to share, please send them my way, and I'll make sure to get it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Cool. And anything like else said, you can think of? Let's uh, share the whole story, and I want to see some of your uh, your artwork as well. All right. Very cool, David. Thank you very much. All right. It was great talking to you, Brian. Yeah, I wish you great health. You too. All right. Good night. Good night. Bye. Bye. A couple thoughts, uh, things I think I missed. David's website is, I have trouble saying this, Roar. The word Roar, I have trouble saying that. Roar of Wolverine. R-O-A-R of Wolverine. He hasn't blogged much this year. I think you should go there and give him a nudge. We need to hear more from him. And then also, if you could kindly support my show sponsor, Koyono, K-O-Y-O-N-O dot com. Pick yourself up a slim wallet. And then a bunch of other stuff, too. Use coupon code SUSHI15. That's for 15% off your purchase. That's a deep discount from them. They don't offer discounts like that. I thank Koyono, and I mostly thank you.